Hi everyone, welcome back to Lessons in the Dark. This episode is about standards of learning and some of the related issues. As always, we're hoping to start a dialogue, so please feel free to reach out on Twitter, Facebook, check out the website, comment on the blog. We'd love to hear your thoughts. All those links are in the description. Thanks, and enjoy! Welcome back to the Lessons in the Dark podcast. I'm going to begin talking about standards-based learning. Standards-based learning started in the 1980s and 90s with the Reagan and Bush administrations in response to reports that the nation's SAT, Scholastic Aptitude Test Scores, for college entrance were lower than expected. The standards of learning in each state were designed to identify the knowledge needed for success in college and or in the workplace. In Arizona, student expectations are based on the college and career readiness standards. There are also the Arizona College Access Network standards, the ASCANs and the NCANs, the National College Access Network standards. Apparently, these all sort of melded together to form the basis of measures upon which the state tests. The Arizona Merit was constructed upon these foundations to ensure the success of Arizona students. Sounds like a good thing, right? Well, it is true that a lot of people, including teachers, parents, administrators, business managers, college professors, and others got together to help create the test. Yet, a site belonging to the ADE, the Arizona Department of Education, says that if a school can pass just 30% of its students on the AZ merit in language arts and math, that is the definition of proficiency. Maybe I wasn't reading that correctly. In fact, you can check it out on their website. The link is in the description for this episode. If you really engage with the Arizona Department of Education or ADE site, you can check out what kindergarten kids in Arizona are expected to learn. Here's a sample of Arizona's reading standards for literature in kindergarten. Understanding key ideas, characters, and setting in a story or a poem. Asking and answering questions about stories and poems, such as who, what, when, where, why, and how. Retelling key details from a story or poem. Asking and answering questions about unknown words in a text. And here are the reading standards for informational text for Arizona kinders. Asking and answering questions about the world around them. Retelling key details from an informational text and distinguishing the key features in an informational text. Have you explained to your four or five-year-old what distinguishing means? And along with all that, Kinder's foundational skills include understanding the organization and basic features of print, recognizing and orally manipulating sounds, blending sounds to read written words with accuracy and fluency, reading and recognizing sight words and different kinds of syllable types, using phonics to write words and to express thoughts and ideas in writing. 
using foundational skills to access a variety of texts. Sounds like that should be more than enough, right? Well, that ain't all. There are seven complex writing standards, four complicated speaking and listening standards, and five extra explicit language standards just to put the cherry on top, all to make it easier for kinders to pass the state tests. I don't know about you, but I was just learning my colors in kindergarten, and I was able to get a master's degree years later. Imagine what I might have done with my life if I were a little younger and had lived in Arizona at age five. And if this sounds ominous, check out the stuff that high schoolers in Arizona have to learn. That's also on the ADE site. Oh, and by the way, while you're at it, check out the pass rates of students in schools around the state. Hate to say it, but a lot of the pass rates are pitiful. Wonder what Secretary of State Betsy DeVos would say about that. Okay, let's talk about the relevance of standardized tests to the students. From 2010 to 2015, I taught in both Southern Arizona near a copper mine where many of the students were Hispanic and in Northern Arizona on a Navajo reservation near the Four Corners. Both areas were among the 90 Arizona districts that adopted Beyond Textbooks, otherwise known as BT Online Curriculum, to help their students pass state tests. My opinion as a teacher at both sites was that the questions had almost zero relevance to my students, regardless of their ethnicity or their background. Why? Well, for example, in language arts, instead of delving into the classics or even dipping in to get a taste of the motivations of the protagonist, the haunting or humorous mood of a piece, or the theme, the questions I saw were little antiquated slices or segments of the classics without appropriate context. Many of the questions were from boring informational texts. And few, if any, questions were culturally relevant or even socially relevant. So let's talk more now about Beyond Textbooks and Copyright. The website Gilbert Watch, which you can see on the description to this podcast and on my website, might be helpful as we explore the use of the Beyond Textbooks curriculum in Arizona. The program is supposed to make students ready for Common Core standards. So is the BT program really helping Arizona students pass the much talked about AZ merit test? In 2013-2014, according to the Gilbert Watch site, the Pace and Unified School District discovered that test scores in both the middle and high schools went down from a B grade to a C grade for the district after they adopted the BT curriculum. In addition, parents and other citizens were not allowed to view the curriculum for a variety of cryptic reasons. The author of the site questions the legality of this. One reason the BT tests are so boring and unengaging for most students is that the copyrights for the questions are pre-1950s to avoid copyright infringement In other words, that feature makes it easier on the experts who devise the BT tests. And I know this because I asked the specialists when they came to the school where I was teaching in Arizona. All right, so what about constant testing? Let's talk about that for a minute. 
The BT program and standardized testing in general encourage teachers to test weekly, record, and compare scores. This promotes a teach-to-the-test approach. Not only that, but in my experience, teachers are often shamed by administrators if weekly tests do not show glowing results. This creates a competition between teachers, and I have often seen them at the point of tears over the lack of apparent achievement of their students in any given week. To give you a salient example, when I was teaching at a middle school in Southern Arizona, the weekly teachers meetings concentrated on BT scores were so abysmal that I sometimes brought candy, flowers, and balloons. I was often forcefully scolded in those meetings in front of my peers. And even though at year's end, I had some of the top scores in middle school language arts for the entire state, this was true. To be exact, my scores were third in the state. And I wasn't the only competent teacher who was scolded. Most of us felt like third graders caught stealing something from the kitchen. This constant testing and its effects appear to be detrimental to both teachers and their students. Whatever happened to just having fun in the classroom while you're learning? Students soon learn to hate these tests. So when the big one comes, they often make op art designs out of it instead of taking it seriously. For some creative examples, check out my website. Anyone ever heard of creativity in teaching? Let's examine that for a minute. Even when I taught in Virginia where textbooks were still in use, many of my fellow teachers and I were alarmed about the changes in curriculum brought about by the standards of learning, the SOL tests. Students were looking forward to learning about American literature in the 19th century when Nathaniel Hawthorne was writing his profound, rich, and sometimes spooky stories. Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau were writing about nature, self-reliance, living in log cabins or communes, and the deeper meaning of the self. Margaret Fuller was talking about women's rights. And in 1950, many transcendentalists like Emerson and Thoreau protested the Fugitive Slave Act. But the SOLs directed our paths so that our team on the English Hall had to scrap all of that. Our year ended with the literature of colonial America so we could concentrate on teaching to the test, though no one was allowed to say that, of course. Not to cut Anne Bradstreet or Michael Wigglesworth, but the day of doom and contemplations are limited in their range and ability to inspire 21st century students, even if the teacher turns the words into a Jeopardy game or basketball hoops. The creativity called for by Bloom's taxonomy, that iconic reference that all good contemporary teachers have counted on, has been largely skirted by the pressing demand for higher scores within the stiff-necked and sometimes prison-like standards-based educational system. Thus, while Common Core calls for rigor and complexity, as well as precision and abstract thinking, the word rigor, when not applied to education, means cold and stiff. If educational rigor implies deep thinking and questioning ideas, then the current testing system hardly accommodates that latter definition. It's hard to discover either potential creativity or deeper levels of complexity in a multiple-choice test world.
especially when the answers are frequently not thought-provoking, but tricky. Anyone with an imagination could easily find two correct answers to some of the questions, if not three. Indeed, it was not unusual for a teacher of any core subject to have found incorrect answers in the BT tests and other standardized, standardized tests that were deemed correct and vice versa. I used to joke about it in the teacher's lunchroom. Let the governor try taking these tests, I snickered, but I was serious too. Of course, I and other teachers did attempt to be creative in spite of the obstacles that we were presented. Almost all teachers continue to try to be creative in myriad ways that enliven their classrooms and make them more engaging. However, it's a hard job. And the job is made even harder by strenuous testing that measures something, but probably not intelligence or capability or creativity or any of the gifts that allow kids to learn to fly as adults. And I'm not talking about literal flying, but maybe I am. Okay, in this test or bust environment, what about the lack of connection between core subjects across the curriculum? I've always believed that children learn best when they can make connections between different academic subjects. Why? Well, that's the way the brain works. It's constantly making connections. That's where understanding metaphor comes from and the ability to comprehend abstract math and the chaos theory in physics. In my research for this podcast, I discovered the work of Julie Thompson Klein. She is a professor at Wayne State University in Michigan, and she specializes in interdisciplinary studies. Klein's research confirms my innate sense that children recognize patterns that move across a broad range of subject matter from math to science to literature and history. If we could channel the natural curiosity of a child by helping to bridge these connections, imagine the real learning that could potentially take place in every classroom. Studies have shown that children get a dopamine high when they learn something new. In other words, the reward may be physiological, as in learning for learning's sake. This being the case, one can easily conclude that the more learning connections, the more fun and challenging the act of learning will be. Maybe new and exciting approaches to teaching and learning will emerge in this century, approaches that inspire kids to take charge of their own pedagogy and progress in bold vanguard ways. But first, we will have to abandon our obsession with standards-based learning and testing because they have failed as the primary ways to measure the true potential and the actual success of our students. At present, most teachers of core subjects are far too occupied with competing for those weekly and yearly scores to set aside time to work in concert with other teachers in constructing linked curriculum that reveals the connections in academic subject matter. But I'll be talking about these connections specifically between language arts and science in a later episode. For now, let's move on to a discussion of what happens in standardized testing when some kids have socioeconomic disadvantages. 
When I was a teacher's assistant in Virginia, I was in the class when the teacher issued a math SOL to fifth graders. One of the questions had the word jet in it, J-E-T, jet, as in a type of airplane. As I was helping to monitor the room, a little girl raised her hand and asked, what's a jet? But of course, I wasn't allowed to help her. My reaction was sadness and disgust that while most fifth graders in another part of town would have no trouble with that word, including my own children, who had been exposed to airplanes and jets from the time they were infants, Others, like this smart little girl in 90% African-American school in an economically depressed area of town, had no idea what the word jet meant. Was it large or small? How many of them would it take to fill a hanger? And what's a hanger anyway, a coat hanger? How fast can it go, or is it slow as a turtle? The question is a serious and pertinent one. Is this sort of test fair to all students, regardless of their socioeconomic circumstances? This sort of socioeconomic disparity is sometimes referred to as cultural deprivation and occurs frequently when parents work several jobs yet can hardly afford food and medicine, much less trips to museums and airports, concerts, galleries, and other places that provide social enrichment. Often, cultural deprivation is overlooked by school psychologists and other learning specialists within the system. Teachers see it constantly, but we are directed to forge ahead. When my son was in the special education program of a Virginia school district in the 1990s, I was dumbfounded to learn about this ugly term, cultural deprivation and to discover that kids who are categorized with this unfortunate term are those living in lower economic circumstances often cannot receive special education services. Of course, a team of professionals must decide, but the odds are against any child considered culturally deprived getting special education services. How are they gonna pass these standardized tests if they don't have special ed? I called a local school system just today to confirm this outlandish fact, and I was referred to the State Department of Education, the DOE website. Unfortunately, the site does confirm that this practice continues. The site says, eligibility committees must consider environmental, cultural, and economic influences prior to determining if a child has a disability. But the site also says, the over or under representation of racially, culturally, and linguistically diverse students in special education has been an issue of concern in the Office of Civil Rights of the United States Department of Education. And this continues to be an area that is monitored at the state and national levels. Just to clarify, are they really saying that poor kids probably can't get an IEP, an individualized educational plan? It sounds like it to me. University of Virginia professor James Ryan says in an article featured in a 2012 Georgetown Law Journal entitled Poverty as Disability and the Future of Special Education Law that the Federal Individuals with Disabilities Education Act or IDEA, IDEA, wrongly excludes students with learning problems that are associated with economic disadvantage. 
Ryan stands upon recent neuroscientific studies suggesting that learning disabilities are not always innate or dealing with internal processing, and that the conditions connected with being brought up in poverty can have internal physical effects on brain function and development. Something to think about. The Every Child Succeeds Act, or ESSA, E-S-S-A, laws that replace No Child Left Behind should have taken effect last year in every state after several prep years. These laws were devised in part to protect and ensure that the highest educational and academic standards are met for low-income and minority students. However, a note dated May of 2018 from Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos to Dr. Stephen Constantino, Acting Superintendent of Public Instruction for the Virginia Department of Education, suggests that Virginia's consolidated plan may remain in the data gathering stage. Even though this step was approved and even congratulated by DeVos, she ends her note with a caveat to Constantino, reminding him that approval of Virginia's consolidated state plan in no way suggests that the plan totally complies with federal civil rights law requirements. She even goes so far as to list a few of the constitutional laws that it may not comply with. I took a glance at Virginia's revised state template for the Consolidated State Plan, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965, as amended by the ESSA, the, the Every Student Succeeds Act, revised several times and finally submitted in September of last year, 2018. Most of what I saw were Virginia's proclamations to continue more and more state tests that would cover the same old benchmarks that have been in place for the last 20 years. Virginia apparently thinks there is enough differentiation already in place, and they completely refuse to test English language learners or ELL students in another language, even if the feds think they should. Even though the DOE site says that the lowest Title I schools and high schools with a federal graduation rate below 67%, must be identified for comprehensive support and improvement starting in this school year. I didn't notice any suggestions as to what kind of support or plans for improvement would be put into place. By the way, Title I is a federal program made available to schools with a student base where at least 40% of the students are in low-income circumstances. Looks like it's still all about identification of certain populations within the system. But then what? Targeted support is a term that was used. But what does that mean? I'm still guessing. Smaller teacher-student ratios, smaller classes, student peer mentoring, reading theater, more teachers with advanced degrees. Those things would be nice, but I'd really like to know exactly what targeted support means, wouldn't you? Oh, and this is just off the Alliance for Excellent Education site, or the all4ed.org site. 14 states ensure school ratings reflect student subgroup performance in compliance with ESSA and receive a green rating, the best rating. The plans from the remaining 38 states receive a yellow or red rating because they do not comply fully with ESSA's requirements or are at risk for noncompliance. 
Among them, 12 states do not include student subgroups in all school ratings and receive a red rating. Only six states provide a strong, distinct definition of consistently underperforming student subgroup needing TSI or targeted support, and they receive a green rating. An additional 29 states are minimally compliant with ESSA's requirements for TSI identification, and they receive a red rating. According to the last stats available, Arizona has a red rating right now, and Virginia remains in the yellow for now. Meredith Broussard, a data journalism professor, wrote an article for The Atlantic in July of 2014 entitled, Why Poor Schools Can't Win at Standardized Testing. This was actually an expose that happened to expose the fact that only a few American publishers are responsible for creating the standardized tests for schools across the country. And they also publish the books or the booklets that must be read in order to dependably get the correct answers. Thus, according to Broussard, teachers who don't order the study booklets for their students have a much slimmer chance of ensuring that those students will pass. Obviously, poor schools often can't afford to buy the necessary booklets, and most teachers cannot afford them either, even though teachers are famous for buying a lot of their students' school supplies. So are there public comments about standardized testing in Arizona? Well, yes, here are a few of the most recent listed on the Arizona Department of Education site this year, 2019. I have concern that the assessments are constantly changing. I have a concern about the implementation of the menu of assessments for rural school districts. I think that the AF grade for schools puts too much accountability on educators. I think we need more consistency. It's difficult to tell what changes have been made to the standards. We need a red line copy of the changes. The review process of the standards should have been more transparent. Small changes are good. Districts need time to adjust to the new summative assessments. There is no money to train teachers on the new standards. I have concern about the alignment of the new standards to the menu of assessments. We have a lack of funding and it affects the districts. Continuously changing the standards affects the recruitment and retention of our teachers. In general, I think there's too much change in education. Changes to the standards shouldn't be too drastic. We are losing too many teachers because they're not properly compensated to do all this. I have a concern that the assessment is online. I think there's a need for more accommodations for ELLs or English language learners on the assessments. It is difficult to align the assessment with the curriculum. ADE is not telling people about the resources that are available. More transparency and a rollout plan is needed. The books will need to be realigned with the new standards, but there is no funding for that. It is frustrating to see the resources are chasing the standards. 
Educators are constantly chasing test scores and teachers have no flexibility as the students get into the older grades. The standards need to be explicit. The menu of assessments will be valuable. Assessments such as Cambridge will allow Arizona to compare with students across the nation. We need multiple measures and not just the current assessments. It's not realistic to have a menu of assessments in a rural school district. It would be better if individual students could take different assessments. Some of the standards are not realistic for all students, especially in a mobile population. When I read these comments from concerned teachers, parents, and other citizens, I wondered if their voices were really being heard. That's one reason that I felt a pressing need to start this podcast. I guess in a way it's really about both education and culture because the two connect, don't they? And it's about politics too when you ask questions such as, do our schools reflect the democracy we've molded in the 21st century? Or what's happening to our democracy and why? What will become of our children? Will their socioeconomic circumstances determine their fate? Or will the American dream come true for them too? And what is that now? What has the American dream become? Are we adequately training our students, be they rich or poor, advantaged or disadvantaged, to get there, to get to the precipice of their American dreams? And my curiosity took me even farther. I wondered if most of our students even dream anymore, or do they just try to survive? How are they formulating their life goals now in a world that constantly measures them by the amount of trivia and canned factual information or formulas that they can memorize? What about that rigor in conquering the next challenge? What about figuring out a complex math problem like the ones it takes to be an astrophysicist, to ride a rocket to the moon and beyond? Will our public schools even be around in the next century? And what happens if they're not? These are questions that I've thought about, but only you really have the answers. Or maybe you don't have the answers, but maybe we can search for them together. So what do you think? I've talked a little about education in public schools in Arizona and Virginia within the past two decades. I chose them because I think they represent microcosms of what may be going on in other school systems around the country. But my hope is that you will bring your own opinions and experiences to the table so that these podcasts may be a jumping off point for dialogue. And isn't dialogue the essence of our democracy? I think so. And I think it's where we start, whether we agree or disagree with the tenets of the current public educational system in our town, our city, or our country. So I hope you'll join me for the next podcast when I'll be discussing the overcrowded classroom. How do we love and nurture our students when there are 50 of them in a classroom? All right, everyone, that does it for episode two. Hope you enjoyed listening. Please leave us a rating and a review. Subscribe if you're enjoying the show so far. We're also looking for people interested in interviewing sharing your thoughts so if you have any experience with the education system and that should be everyone please send us an email email address is in the description 
along with our website, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. Next episode should be out April 8th, so stay tuned.